Welcome everyone to the Compass of Power. I'm Adam Wilson, and here we say place is politics, and we're going to talk about Bidenomics today. A special shout out to all the new followers. There's a few new followers, and I appreciate that. And I do want to say that if anyone wants to get in touch with me, I post my episodes on the com, And those, of course, allow comments. So if you have thoughts about today's episode, you can go there and comment. Or, of course, you could uh, go on to your favorite podcast listening app and leave a review, especially on the Apple product, which is super important. Uh, reviews rule the world there. So I'm very thankful if you want to reach out or give me some stars. Bidenomics is a fun concept, and here we look at everything through the place lens. Where is it coming from? So before we get into exactly where Joe Biden's from, I want us to hear from Joe Biden uh, a little bit about what he means. And this is going to be short. This is less than 60 seconds, right about 60 seconds of a speech Biden gave to some unionized workers in Wisconsin. Today, I come to Milwaukee to talk about what we're doing to bring manufacturing back home. It's about our progress, building an economy from the middle out and the bottom up, not the top down. You know, we, that trickle-down economics, not a whole lot landing on my dad's kitchen table. But when the middle works and the bottom has a shot up, the wealthy do very well. I'm a capitalist. You make a billion dollars, go make it. I mean it. Just pay a little more taxes than you're paying right now. 8% doesn't quite get it. But look. I came to office determined to move away from the trickle-down economics and to focus on the middle class. Because I said, when the middle class does well, everybody does well. Everybody does well. The Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal started calling my plan, not initially as a compliment, Bidenomics. But guess what, folks? They're talking about it differently now. It's working. It's working. All right. That's... That's Bidenomics. It's from the, uh, what is it, from the bottom up and the middle out, not the top down. There's a frequent phrasing there by the president himself. But as you heard, it was a, originally a derisive term from conservatives, particularly in the old school uh, finance sectors. And let's talk about where this is coming from, literally. Joe Biden, as I have remarked before, is from North Delaware. Northern Delaware? You tell me, Delawareites. Is it North Delaware or Northern Delaware? Uh, but there, uh, is a very special little bit of American culture and it's different in its economic views from, uh, the dominant Yankee culture north of it founded by the Puritans or the, uh, Tidewater, uh, deep South cultures to the South of it. And Bidenomics is Definitely a reflection of the culture that you will find in northern Delaware. Upper, it was started, or you know, the, the heartland of it is around Philadelphia, and then it heads west and kind of actually heads north and south, it goes all the way to North Texas and then way up into Canada. Um, but like most of these foundational cultures on the east coast of the United States, it moved from east to west from the coast, and Delaware itself. Again, we have to think that the political boundaries, state lines, city limits have very little to do with culture. Uh, and, however, there is 
kind of a neat thing about the shape of Delaware, and that is that it has a perfectly round north end. It is perfectly round, a semicircle. And that is because it was a cultural boundary of a kind. We are talking about uh, King Charles II, I believe. And Charles defined that northern border after they took this area from the Dutch. So this was, the Dutch were living in uh, northern Delaware, and the English kicked the Dutch out. And the most important part about that was probably getting New York City, which was formerly New Amsterdam. And in our model, we would call it New Netherlands. But the Delaware area, the Delaware Bay, uh, was Dutch. And they basically set a pin in Newcastle along the Delaware River, Delaware Bay area, the estuary, I suppose, and drew a 12-mile radius around it. And that was the buffer zone. That was to protect the culture that was there from its neighbors in what was you know, originally English territory. When I say originally, I mean when we're talking about governmental systems uh, established by uh, folks from Europe. We're not talking about the Native Americans, but the first uh, sort of organized government European settled land there. So the Dutch are there, they lose control of that territory, it goes to the English, the English set a pin in Newcastle and then say, whoop, 12 miles away from here, border zone to protect you, to protect you from whom? The Quakers, which is pretty funny because the Quakers themselves were pretty mild-mannered, but they clearly were not the same folks as those that were in that northern Delaware region. And you may think, well, that leads to, you know, well, then why are we talking about this as being one culture that goes, you know, starting in that area that includes northern Delaware, Philadelphia, and then races all the way to the very tippy top of Texas? Uh, well, first of all, broad strokes here, broad strokes here. There are differences, obviously, between Delaware and like that very southeast corner of Pennsylvania. However, uh, they are also have a lot in common, and that is at least partly because Delaware was leased, basically sublet, to William Penn. William Penn is the founder of Pennsylvania. And we're not going to get into the whole history here uh, too much because we want to talk about Bidenomics. But let's just say that William Penn uh, was a well-to-do English person. The royalty, the king, owed him some favors. And in those days, you could pay somebody off by giving them huge swaths of land far, far across the ocean. And that's what happened. They're like, here you go, Pennsylvania. It's all yours, pal. We're even. Uh, and William Penn was a, a very smart dude and a Quaker. And the Quakers were a new religious sect in England, in the, uh, and we're talking the 1600s here. And in those days, to know someone's religion was to know their politics, much in the way that we think today. If, well, if I know what race someone is, if I know their ethnicity, then I know their politics because we're polarized racially. Uh, well, that's not entirely true, and it's not entirely true that if you knew what church someone went to in 17th century England, that you knew exactly what their politics were, but they were highly correlated. So William Penn uh, wanted to create Pennsylvania as a safe haven for his Quaker brethren, the Society of Friends. And these folks were persecuted mightily in England, which of course had the official Church of England. They reacted to this persecution and what would become a hallmark of their style by becoming pacifists rather than, rather than fighting back, which is a very strong streak in other American cultures. They 
tried not to get into hostilities. They were very, very big into your inner light, into knowing you decide for yourself what is good. You have to think about it. And you, that's an interesting choice you made. <laughs> that's what I can hear their mother saying. That's an interesting choice you made, uh, Bartholomew. Why did you make that choice? That's them. So Penn creates this area that's sort of uh, going to let you live as you want and set you on your own. And it attracted like-minded folks from Germany, particularly. Um, and we want to talk about economics today. So what did these folks, the Quakers, think about working? And I think the place to start there is, what did they think about learning? Because we always associate what you learn with what you do uh, as an employee today. That's like, you know, even though we try to have like a liberal education and know a lot about the world and we're all supposed to learn history, right? That's a big topic. But in reality, there's a definitely vocational aspect to everything, including uh, doctoral degrees. Um, the Quakers were of two minds about reading. <laughs> they, they, uh, they were very conflicted. They one thought that learning was good. They thought books were good. They thought literacy was good. On the other hand, they thought too much of it was bad. And they also didn't want to tell anybody what to do. So they weren't going to insist on too much here. So uh, here's another uh, letter from Penn. I had quoted him early on because he has this kind of fun for a very literate, very uh, learned man who moved in the highest societies, particularly on the in the British America, uh, he had an interesting view on things. And here's a quote from him in a letter to his own children. Have but few books, but let them be well chosen and well read, whether of religious or civil subjects. Reading many books is but taking off the mind too much from meditation. Reading yourselves and nature in the dealings and conduct of men is the truest human wisdom. So yeah, you should read books and they should be, but they should be great books, good books, well chosen. And if you read too much, you're taking your mind off of your own thoughts and of your dealings and conduct with fellow humans. And this is sort of uh, this sort of ambivalence towards being highly literate is easily contrasted with the Puritans who are due north of these folks. Uh, the Puritans thought you had to learn to read in order to be a good person. You had to be able to read the Bible, basically. And if you couldn't do that, then you were in a lot of trouble. So, and that is really like the rootstock of American education system is the Puritan system of like you compulsory education. You will go to school. You will learn to read. You will learn how to be a good person. Uh, the Quakers were a little bit more hands-off and that was even reflected. This is fascinating. If you, uh, I've been lately digging back into my Albion seed by David Hackett Fisher. It's a fantastic book, uh, fairly dense in and of itself, but a good book and well-chosen, I dare say. And they, their schools were actually hexagonal, vaguely round structures where the kids would sit in circles to be less hierarchical. If you remember the classic schoolhouse, which is the classic Puritan schoolhouse, it's the long rectangular shape with a teacher at the head with like a stick to whack you. Well, the the Puritans uh, had one view and the Quakers had another. And the Quaker view was like, well, let's put them in a circle and we're all going to learn together. And I can imagine them singing or, you know, playing duck, duck, goose or something in between lessons. So they're, their reverence for literature was had a definite like break on it when we're talking about the Quakers and their commitment to making people go to school also had a break on it. Yes. They wanted everyone to be educated. They thought it would help them achieve their best and highest usefulness to really let that inner light shine. 
On the other hand, uh, they didn't want to tell people exactly what to do. So it wasn't as compulsory. Um, and this, this is a, follows into work, right? So I, I want to talk a little bit about their attitude towards work, which follows their attitudes towards learning, right? And that is that the Quakers really believed in work. Uh, and they wanted you to work hard and to, but they really wanted you to do it honestly. Um, they put a very high value on being a fair dealer. And so again, you have this two minds concept where like, yeah, you're supposed to work, you're supposed to contribute. Um, and that again, contrasts to other American cultures where they have different attitudes towards work, but that was breaked. It was slowed down by a feeling that if you work too much, then you were uh, you were taking your eyes off the big prize, which was to be a good human being. Uh, here's a quote. These are both from David Hackett Fisher, by the way, but a quote from uh, George Fox, the Quaker. He says, there is, a, there is the danger and temptation to you of drawing your minds into your business and clogging them with it so that you can hardly do anything to the service of God, but there will be crying, my business, my business, and your minds will go into the things and not over the things. Again, same thing as like high learning. Yes, learning's great, but don't let it capture your mind. Yes, work is great. Don't let it capture your mind. And this, in a fantastic geographical and historic coincidence, manages to put them right in between the Puritans to the north who are very, very into learning, very, very into business, and the Virginians, the Tidewater folks uh, due south of them who liked learning and literacy for the elite, the ruling class, the uh, Madisons and Adams and uh, Washingtons of the world, uh, but were fearful of educating the hoi polloi. They felt like if we, well, if we give everyone an education, what are they going to do? Rise up and kill us? You know, <laughs> so uh, they were, they believed in some people having the very highest education and other people having zero education. So there, and in between those two poles, you have the middle people, the Midlands, the Delawareites, uh, if you will, who thought that you should have just enough learning, just enough work, focus on being a good human being. And that is uh, that kind of aspect in all sorts of parts of the Quaker slash Midlands culture that w is so strong in uh, Pennsylvania and parts of the Midwest is why Colin Woodard, who is, you know, the hero of this podcast, because he uh, kind of mapped, literally mapped out these uh, main American cultures in his book, American Nations, he calls the Midlands the most American culture. When you think about like what defines American life, you can think of the Midlands as being this sort of halfway point between the far poles of American culture. Yes, they like learning. No, they're not super, super duper into it. Yes, they think people should be able to go and do whatever they want, but no, they shouldn't be able to be crooked business people. Uh, and that brings us back to Bidenomics. Bidenomics as an approach, if it, if it really is a philosophy, and I think it's actually a number of things that it's kind of cool that somebody came up with a term to label it. And, you know, every president, you could say, well, that's Clintonomics and Obamanomics, but Joe Biden got giant signs to put behind him in, in unionized workplaces that says Bidenomics. So this is a term that at least right now is a real word. 
And it, it encompasses his infrastructure package, his bipartisan infrastructure package uh, that got through Congress that builds roads and bridges and investing green technology, renewable energy, that sort of thing. Uh, it talks about higher taxes on corporations uh, and taking those higher taxes and lower uh, those are higher taxes for the corporations, tax credits for parents, uh, cheaper training and education for folks uh, through his uh, student loan forgiveness. Also, he wanted to give free community college to everybody. He talks a lot about the trades and he proudly, proudly goes around and says that he is the most pro-union president in history. And that's probably true. And I think he says that I'm the most union-friendly president in history, too. Ah, it doesn't matter. The point is he really likes unions. And that is a huge turnaround from the last 40 years. As unions have declined, and uh, we had Reagan, we had Bush 1, Bush 2, Clinton. None of those guys were particularly pro-union. Obama, kind of. Uh, but there's kind of been a laissez-faire attitude, meaning just like, let's it is the Reaganomics approach. Let's lower taxes so that companies have more to invest, or let's do free trade deals uh, with Canada and Mexico, with China. We're trying to like open up boundaries and it's supposed to create a larger economic ocean to raise all boats metaphor stretched. Um, and Joe Biden's not down with that. He won't, he, you know, he's has, what is it? The chips and science act where he's, very clearly saying you need to build semiconductors in the United States and here's some money to do it. Uh, he's skeptical of trade with China and he uh, is more or less encouraging of unions. Like uh, there was, remember there's a famous uh, vote on unionization in the South recently and he weighed in and said, you have a right to form a union, which isn't like, um, you know, gathering signatures, <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, it's not like he is a union member himself. I think Ronald Reagan was the only union member to become president of the United States. Uh, but Biden is very, very, he says that the middle class built America and unions built the middle class, which is, you know, I think you can make a historical argument for the be that being true. Here's the problem, though. I want to, unions need government support. Uh, if you look at union history, when you have presidents opposed to unions, and there have been some who have taken out the army <laughs> to fight union members, uh, unions don't do well. When you have pre presidents that are ambivalent or just government that's ambivalent, they don't do so well. And it is no coincidence whatsoever that beginning in, I think, the 80s, maybe late 70s, you had these anti-union laws being passed state by state. And guess what? The whole South is a union-free zone. Not that they're, you know, more or less. I understand there are a few unions, but let's get real. The Midlanders and the Yankees are much more tolerant of workers organizing and demanding higher pay, better benefits, uh, better working conditions than the South, where the Southern culture, especially the Deep South, as we all know, in its very bones has a feeling that the working class does not deserve any better than what people are willing to give them. And in the case of slavery, that was nothing for your life. Um, and throughout American history, unions have only flourished when they were given a little bit of room to grow by the government. Yes, they have rallied and there's been huge strikes. There's been giant uh, union uh, 
I don't know, sometimes they're called massacres, which is kind of a, I don't know, that might be not be the right term, really, in modern parlance. But there were violent union and, and business uh, conflicts throughout American history, the worst of which uh, was actually in West Virginia, as we discussed in a recent episode. When you tolerate unions, they do a little better, just like if you get tough on businesses, they don't do as well. I mean, look at New York City, interestingly, uh, just basically banned Airbnbs in New York City. It's just, you know, now they were there and now they're not. And I, there's probably some exceptions, but it was more or less like, we don't want Airbnb in our town, Airbnb in our town. And that's a big town. And that's, I'm not weighing in on whether that's good or bad. I'm just saying like government has the power to do a lot to business, just like it does uh, to has the power to do a lot for unions. There's now a surge in unionism. We have all sorts of unionization drives. Starbucks made a lot of headway. There was one, one Amazon uh, uh, warehouse that unionized. Those are two Seattle companies though, which are Yankee based uh, culture companies that had unionization drives. Uh, and you saw the Teamsters win a big victory with UPS and get their drivers. Jeez, what was it? It was like $150,000 a year for those drivers. I mean, it's a good job to get. That is a win for unions and certainly a win for their drivers. Uh, but now we have the UAW, the United Auto Workers, on strike in a few plants. And things are getting tense because when they aren't making cars, then there are no new cars for Americans to buy. It can have economic repercussions. And you start to get down to the nitty gritty of what does it mean to favor the working class, the middle class, and unions in particular? Because it does literally set you at odds with the corporate leadership of America. And Biden is trying to help broker a deal with the UAW. And presidents have had a history of doing that. Teddy Roosevelt was pretty famous for working something out with unions uh, during his presidency. But they can also backfire because in the end, Unions usually stake out pretty tough stances as that's just part of how they have to operate. They have to like go on strike to get attention like people in Hollywood are right now. Uh, but that doesn't, you know, extreme action doesn't always sit well with the American public writ large. You can imagine that like, especially like in the Midlands, it's like, oh, yes, I support your right to do things. But now you're getting kind of uppity and it's disturbing to my peace and tranquility. And I, when I see what's going on with Biden and the UAW, I think of 1937 and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was a very union-friendly president himself. As we all know, FDR was elected by the working people of the United States in the depths of the Great Depression to get in there and do something. And he literally put people to work with a government paycheck through things like the Conservation Corps, and he created the Tennessee Valley Authority, and he absolutely intervened in a Bidenomic style. Uh, but by 1937 which is into a uh, year uh, term two for him. He is uh, sitting there and watching all sorts of strikes going on, sit-ins across the country. Um, there are, let's hear, I think in Youngstown, Ohio, in June of that year, uh, police opened fire outside of union headquarters and killed three people. Uh, that summer, 18 workers died uh, for not much gains. Uh, there was a big steel strike going on. And 
public opinion was like, hey, this is getting a little weird. We're, people are dying. There's a lot of disrupt, disruption, and I really want things to calm down. Um, and there was, and I'm now looking at David Kennedy's uh, Freedom from Fear, uh, a great book on this period in American history. And he mentions that pressure mounts on Roosevelt, FDR, to do something. Just like you're seeing with Biden right now with the auto workers on a smaller scale, like, hey, yes, it's great for the working man to get something, the working women, but hey, uh, this seems like getting out of hand. Well, thankfully, we don't have people killed at this point. Uh, and by, Roosevelt says, <clears throat> finally, he breaks his silence and he says, the majority of people are saying just one thing, a plague on both your houses. That's probably how he felt. He was like, you guys, you know, he probably felt like the unions were being unreasonable. He felt like the corporations were being unreasonable. He wanted this problem to go away and to get on with recovery from the Great Depression. But that did not sit well with the union folks. Because like the union folks today, the union fake folks in 1937 felt like the president owed them something because they had helped him get elected. Their people had turned out. He had made a lot of promises. And now he's saying pox on both your houses. So uh, John L. Lewis of the CIO at the time replies, it ill behooves one who has supped at labor's table and who has been sheltered in labor's house to curse with equal fervor and fine impartiality both labor and its adversaries when they become locked in a deadly embrace. So it's like, hey, it's interesting that you're being, you're sharing the blame here when only one side helped you out. And that was kind of the end of FDR's romance with labor. And I'm not saying the UAW strike is going to be the end of FDR's romance with labor, but it is definitely uh, now things are getting real. And it is a it's a little spat, shall we say, a spat in the making, a little misunderstanding, a moment of tension at the dinner table, if you will. So Bidenomics. Absolutely in line with where Joe Biden's from, which is the Midlands region and the Midlands prize working. They prize education, but they don't think you should have to work too hard. They don't think you need to be overeducated. And that's what Bidenomics is. It's unchanged from the uh, 1700s and uh, the 1600s in a lot of ways, uh, but it has its own problems uh, that we are going to see uh, come to the fore just as these very economic policies have done in the past. Thank you for listening. Sorry that went a little long. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Again, please leave me a review or get in touch with me. I want to talk to people and I want to hear what you're thinking and maybe answer questions or something. That'd be cool. All right. Thank you.